Hello, welcome to the Hoop Collective Podcast. We talk about the NBA and joining me from New York City, a new old friend coming back to ESPN after leaving us a couple of years ago. We're so happy to have him back, Chris Herring. What's up, Chris? Welcome back to the Hoop Collective. Thanks so much, Brian. I'm happy to be with you and uh, appreciate the warm welcome. I hope you guys are doing well. As well. I hope you guys are doing well, too. I think last time we talked to you, we're like living in a high rise in Chicago. So you've like, you've like really you've moved back to the East Coast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, fiancés, uh, particularly when you're in long distance relationships, will have you do that. Uh, so happier for a lot of different reasons, uh, but but really happy to be back here and uh, genuinely have felt the warm welcome from you and everybody else since I've signed back on. Terrific. All right. So we've done we've had guests on this podcast from a lot of different places over the years, just this year alone. A lot of places in the world, from the Philippines to Italy. I was in Scotland two weeks ago, but for the first time. We've got somebody in Montgomery, Alabama, and that is where Om Young Masuk joins us from. Om, how are you? What are you doing in Montgomery, Alabama on this fine December day? By the way, I forgot to say it is Tuesday morning here. I'm on the West Coast, Tuesday afternoon on the East Coast. Om, what are you doing in Montgomery? I am following one Bronny James. This will be his third game since his come back from suffering cardiac arrest second game of the road they played auburn on sunday before a pretty raucous crowd i did run into the great charles barkley always great to see him um where he is the ambassador uh so uh as you can imagine but yeah Bronny plays alabama state uh with usc tonight and then i will be back to la to join the red hot clippers yeah uh we'll, we'll talk about in a second I did not know where Alabama State was until you told me that you were in Montgomery. So um, I'm not really sure why USC is playing Alabama State, but that's for another podcast. <laughs> so far, Bronny has played a couple of games. What have you, I know that, you know, we're not into college evaluation here, except when Gavoni comes on. Um, what have you seen? What's it been like in the Bronny sweepstakes or, you know, the, the Bronny circus, I guess I should say. He's played uh, on a lim- you know minutes restriction, obviously, and he plays in three minute stints. Uh, so it's it's hard to evaluate him. But what you can see is certainly like he's a you know there's been things that have been passed down through the genes from LeBron James. One, I think he does have basketball IQ and feel. He's a guy that I think needs to play more minutes in order. The more minutes he plays, the more positive impact he has. He's not a guy that's going to force anything. He's a guy that moves the ball. He's a connector. Uh, you can see him make some open threes defensively. I think he's he's pretty quick. He can stay in front of guys, uh, but he's not a guy that's going to come in and like you know get up 15 shots in 15 minutes and score a lot of points. I think you're going to see the more he plays, probably more well-rounded numbers like he had in his debut. Uh, a little assists here, little rebounds here. He had a, a I tell you, he had a very LeBron-esque chase down block in his debut. Um, but, you know, I mean, he, it's hard for him right now because he's only playing in these three minute stints and he's only played 13 and uh, 17 minutes in his debut and 13 minutes the other night. Yes. Yeah, so a lot of people are seeing him play. You know, that game was on national TV, that Auburn game. And uh, actually a friend of mine who's a media member in Alabama, he sent me a photo, Bronny warming up before the game. And I saw just behind him by happenstance, he wasn't actually taking a picture, but there was several relatively high-ranking NBA executives yes. who were at that game in Auburn. Not so much to see Bronny, but to evaluate Isaiah Collier, who Gavoni has right now as his number one pick on the board. Although USC is a 500 team, I'm not asking you to analyze college basketball, but I will say that he is playing, 
his first minutes of college basketball coming off of a, you know, that terrible cardiac event that he had over the summer and playing under enormous pressure. So there are people giving evaluations of Bronny. And I'm like, like on one hand, you've got LeBron basically guaranteeing he's going to be in the draft. And on the other hand, you've got the reality, which is he's, he's, he's jumping into the deep end under a heavy let set of circumstances. So I will just say that for me personally, not an evaluator of talent, not somebody that ranks um, prospects. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt of a few months, but I'm not sure sure everybody feels that way. And, and Andy Enfield, the head coach, basically said that the other day, that we, we cannot get into judging him possession by possession, which is our world today. And you have to, I've even had to remind myself, like this kid, you know, has only had a couple practices basically in hand. He didn't play for four plus months. And for him to come back off any type of injury, let alone, a cardiac event is something that I think we all have to remind ourselves about. So, yeah, I mean, we got to give it more time. Uh, I do know this. USC has been struggling despite having a great backcourt, which features Isaiah Collier and Boogie Ellis. Uh, but I do think the more he plays, the better the team will be. That's interesting. So we'll keep an eye on that uh, Pac-12 play. The final Pac-12 season uh, will start here pretty soon. So we'll get to see him more frequently in those types of games. All right, let's ship back to the NBA, but we're going to stay on the West Coast here in Los Angeles where I am right now. The Clippers are on the road, but they had another terrific performance. I mean, definitely James Harden's best game. It's Frankly, it was his best James Harden performance in years. So he had a 35-point game on Monday night. He had eight three-pointers, and he was in straight old-school Harden isolation. And it was the most three-pointers he's made in a game since December of 19. So pre-pandemic, four years basically since he's made uh, eight threes in a game. He had five ISO three-pointers were basically what, you know, ISO three-pointer is basically code in the hardened world for step back where he's going between his legs, between his legs, between his legs. And then he does that hop step back and he made five of those. And that's the most he's made since December of 2020. So three years. And, you know, Chris, this, you know, I'm not so much focused on what Harden is doing in terms of playing isolation. I'm focused on other stuff with the Clippers, but the Clippers have won their last eight games and they are, showing their teeth as a team that is a serious contender in the Western Conference. And in my mind, they are, I sort of think the the Sixers are a pretty big story as well, although they had their winning streak snapped on Monday night against the Bulls in a surprising game. But to me, the story of the NBA right now is not in Memphis with Ja. It's not in, in Golden State with Draymond. It's not in Cleveland with Donovan Mitchell. The story of the NBA right now is the Clippers, and a subset of that is Kawhi Leonard, and it's time that everybody pays notice to that. I think you have to. Also, just in fairness, at least for that awkward week, week and a half, two weeks, where his own would tell you, as anybody would tell you, analysts were pretty critical of the Clippers when it wasn't working to start, which shouldn't have been a huge surprise. You're adding James Harden in, who hadn't really played much, didn't really play at all during the preseason because of all those issues in Philly. So it's only fair now that they're they're looking fantastic. They drop 151 points on a team that we just watched play very well in the in-season tournament. And James Harden is making snow angels on the court. I mean, it's it's <laughs> it. I mean, it was something to watch that game. It, it was something to watch Kawhi go. I don't know if he finished nine for nine, but I know at one point was nine for nine from two dunking on. I mean, it, it was something to watch. And I think it's it's a couple of things. It is 
the rotation being simplified a little bit now that you kind of lose that awkwardness between Harden and Westbrook and you just kind of make a decision that, okay, Westbrook is going to go to the bench and we're going to let Harden run this. It's Harden making an active choice to try to develop better chemistry with someone like Zubach and the other bigs in this lineup, whether it's after practice, what have you, to try to develop this rhythm that he didn't, couldn't have until he was part of this team. And it's, let's be honest, it's Kawhi playing every night, which you know that there's always a risk involved with that, but it is the rhythm of, think about what Ohm was just talking about with Bronny. You can't judge things minute to minute, possession by possession. It's really hard to judge things game by game too when your star players are out of the lineup all the time. And the Clippers have had that reality now for years. And Kawhi, you know, knock on wood that he stays healthy, but when he's out there every night, and he could play the way that he's been playing. He's one of the most dominant players in the league. And uh, it's easy to forget that in light of how often he's been injured and how long those injuries have taken to recover from. But this is a, a dangerous team. And, and really, since they've gone to this lineup now with Terrence Mann back in the mix and Harden just kind of developing more and more comfort and and frankly, having more juice because he's had the ball in his hands less because he's playing alongside other stars. It, it is a dangerous team. They look that way. And it, uh, you know, it, it's something that I think we all have our eye on now. Um, you're with this team all the time when you're not with USC. <laughs> the Clippers maintained confidence that they were going to get this figured out really for years, but specifically after the Harden trade and and they're backing that up. I it's it's um it's quite amazing to watch because Tyloo told us it would take him 10 games to figure this out. It's actually taken him 20. That was their 21st game last night. And even though they had won, you know, what is now eight in a row, I think you could argue they were handling their business, but they weren't playing their best basketball. Last night was their best basketball. Everything was running on all cylinders. Perhaps the only thing, if I were to nitpick, was their transition D, which for some reason, when they miss shots or there's turnovers, they give up easy layups at the rims. Uh, at the rim. So, But that's just nitpicking. You saw Kawhi come out and just... He is on an absolute tear. If you, if you have not been paying attention to the Clippers because they play later on the West Coast, Kawhi Leonard is has quietly, surprise, surprise, played in every game this season, starting tomorrow in Dallas, will be his fifth back-to-back, and Paul George's fifth back-to-back if they are able to finish these next two games. Kawhi Leonard and Paul George have played in 25 to 26 games. I'm writing a story tomorrow for ESPN, which is basically like surprise, surprise, the two poster childs of the player participation policy have played in almost every game and every back-to-back, and they're playing their heaviest minutes. They're averaging their most minutes per game as Clippers. So far, as Tyler would say, the reason why he's playing these guys heavy minutes is because we need to win games because they lost six in a row shortly after that Harden trade. And since then, they've won uh, 10 of the last 13. Last night, though, was really the blueprint. Kawhi Leonard comes out and is on fire from the mid-range. He's actually getting to his shots more efficiently because of James Harden. Paul George then takes over for stretches, and he loves playing against the Pacers, especially in Indiana. And then what you see is Russell Westbrook now has become like a 17-minute player, which is, as it comes out of my mouth, I find that very hard to believe that I'm saying that because at the beginning of the season, he was their starting point guard and their leader and really was making had a great training camp. And now I think he's figuring out unfortunately, of all the big four, that he's really had the hardest time adapting, that he has to basically get everything in 17 minutes. Harden, on the other hand, for a long time, refused to shoot, Brian. I mean, I've even talked to Zajian and I said, 
you know, Harden's been great. Pick and rolls have been unbelievable. You know, he's really been the, the passer that the Clippers want, this elite passer. He's made Ivica Zubats better, but I'd like to see him shoot more. Like he's passing up open catch and shoots. He's not really being aggressive last night was really kind of the game where we saw James Harden cook. I mean, I even said to Ty Lue at shoot around like a couple weeks ago, I said, do you, to encourage him to shoot more, do you need to put him on the floor with maybe like four role players and not necessarily any other stars? Because it seemed like he was deferring so much. And Ty actually agreed with me. But last night, you could see it. And the chemistry is really growing. Like Kawhi and Paul were on the bench. When James hit his sixth straight three-pointer uh, in that fourth quarter and fell down and did the Snow Angels, there's another angle of somebody who shot video in Indiana from behind the bench, and you see them explode off the bench. Kawhi, as animated as we've seen him. So the Clippers right now have it all going. I just fear like it's only December, number one. We have a long way to go. And as Chris mentioned, and as I talk about for tomorrow in the story, the health is important of Paul and Kawhi. They are playing heavy minutes. They're playing back-to-backs. And for the previous four years, the plan had always been for the Clippers, let's make sure they're okay for the playoffs. Let's not use them. But that never games against never defense. Right. And, you know, look, so now they're saying, well, no, we're just going to play them. We're going to play them heavy minutes. And I think in training camp, when Tyler decided to do two-a-days and all this conditioning and everything, it's starting to pay off. Yeah, so... I mean, Ty Lue has openly said that one of the reasons why James Harden is playing better is because he's in better shape. He's gotten in shape since he got there. And maybe this rhythm is helping Kawhi. Now, Kawhi had offseason knee surgery. And for the first, and I, I don't really have the stats right in front of me. I have his recent stats, but I don't remember. Oh, maybe but the, the first, his first 10 to 12 games, his mid-range shot, which is just still one of the, the, the two most impressive workouts, you know, individual workouts I've personally ever witnessed. I once watched Mike Miller do this workout, which was a running and shooting workout. Actually, I once watched Jason Capono. Remember him, UCLA? Mm -hmm. Um, He was one of the purest standstill shooters I've ever seen. I once watched him do a hundred shot workout where he made 93 and they were all jumpers. I've never seen these Steph Curry work. I mean, I've seen videos like where he's made like a hundred in a row or whatever, but in terms of actually watching that workout with Capono, Once I saw Mike Miller do this workout where he was like running from baseline to half court and catching like exhausting workout. And he was making three after three after three. Do you want to know what it means to be a professional athlete? You should have seen Mike Miller do this workout. And I know there's a lot of other guys who do it. I'm just talking about ones I've witnessed. And then I remember before a finals game in 2019, watching Kawhi go through a pregame workout where he probably shot, I wasn't keeping track. He probably shot a hundred and plus shots between 15 and 20 feet. And he made 98% of them Mm -hmm. and was like working hard. And uh, Jamal McGlure was defending him for a little while. He's an assistant with the Raptors and uh, Jamal like was sweating and had like, he was working hard as a seven footer defending him and he had to tap out halfway through. And um, what's his, um, what's his, uh, his guy, uh, um, Jeremy, Jeremy Castleberry. Uh, Jeremy Castleberry tapped in and did this back half of the workout. And that was pregame. That was like before the game. So I've watched his mid-range jumper, which we've seen in games, just be untouchable. At the beginning of the season, it wasn't right. He, He was short. It was pretty clear that his legs weren't there. Okay. So maybe, Ulm, the extra work in the preseason and the extra work during the during this regular season has gotten him into condition because over the last 11 games, Kawhi is averaging 29.3 points per game on 59.8. So 60% shooting 56% on threes. 
Okay. He's the fourth player to average 29 points a game on 55% shooting from both the floor and three point range over 11 games in NBA history. And it's guys like Dale Ellis, Reggie Miller, and mm-hmm. Kevin Durant, you know, some of like the most purest shooters ever. Cause that it, the, the tough one is that 55% three point range. So what I'm saying here is that Kawhi has gotten that jumper back. And here's something else. He had 18 points in the paint against the Pacers. Now look, the Pacers are not a good defensive team and miles Turner missed this game. So their best paint protector was not there. So it was obviously a game where you were going to give up some points if you're the Pacers and they had 151. Kawhi had 18 points in the paint in the game. And he also had uh, 16 points on jumpers. So he made eight jumpers from there. He has more than 15 points on jumpers six times this season. And four of them have come in the last eight games. And so in this win streak, the Clippers rank second in offense in rating, eighth in defense, and they are shooting their 52% as a team and 42% on threes. So they are an offensive machine right now. And look, we can have qualifiers for the next 10 minutes, but considering where they were and considering the way they've let people down and all that stuff, it just should be noted that what they're doing right now. And um, they've got a road trip here. Who, who else are they playing on this road trip? Home? I mean, you said well, they're playing da- Dallas. That Dallas and then Oklahoma City in the end. And then they return home and it's Boston. So this is, you know, Boston before Boston gets the Lakers on Christmas Day. So it's definitely going to be a test for them. I think for Kawhi, what we've seen is like when he was uncomfortable early in the season, Clippers would push back with me and say he wasn't. I would say he was uncomfortable. I think it was really he was trying to get adjusted to a new whole lineup. Um, at the beginning of the season, he came in. Ty Lue wanted them to basically cut, move the ball a lot, move without the ball. There's all things he was trying to do. And then, you know, he was having the ball less in his hands. Same for Paul. And I think what we've seen James Harden do for them is that Kawhi is actually taking less of a pounding. Kawhi, I, I asked uh, sports inform- ESPN Sports Information, I mean, uh, Sports and uh, what do you call it, Info, basically to, to say, like, how much does he have the ball in his hands? Because he's so methodical in getting to his spots. And basically, they said that he's averaging fewer dribbles per field goal attempt with Harden. It's down from 3.7 to 3.1. And he's having to create his own shots less on shot attempts and half-court sets, down from 72% of the season to go to 66% with, with Harden. So he's actually getting to his spots faster. He doesn't have to pound, pound, pound his way inside. He's adapting to double teams quicker. It's like it took him a minute, but the computer basically assessed and adapted everything. And so I think you're seeing that with Paul George and all these guys are getting their shots a little bit easier now. And hopefully that takes less of a toll on them. But this is going to be their their back-to-backs. The streak is definitely going to be tested because Luka Doncic, as we know, loves to torch the Clippers. So he they get them first, and then it's a big test at Oklahoma City, and then Boston will truly see how good the Clippers are probably this week. Yeah, Chris, I, I, it's very hard to predict. It's to make a prediction on what's going to happen with the Clippers to project them because you can't you can't project their health. But you have to when you look at where they are in the West, they have the package of ingredients. And one of the interesting things is that for some reason, and maybe it won't last. And I'm not even like suggesting that. It will. But for some reason, Avicia Zubac, the Clippers center, seems to give Nikola Jokic some trouble. 
Now I I'm almost regretting those words coming out of my mouth because <laughs> like, I feel like the next time they will play, you know, Jokic will go you know, <laughs> 17 for 22 with 12 right. assists and oh. 17 rebounds, but not, um, not all the time, Brian, this season though, he did. Uh, it was, it was in, it was in that first of two games stretch where Nicola looked incredibly human where he was missing all those shots. I think he went like nine for 28 or something like that. And uh, one game. And I, I never seen him miss those floaters, even off the Jamal Murray pass. He was missing floaters. He was missing those little bunnies that he tips back. He constantly tips back. He was missing everything. And I was like, what is going on with him? Is he hurt or what? And you saw him for a couple of games, kind of miss those shots and, and zoo has played him very well. But I mean, in the past, there were seasons, there were seasons where Jokic just absolutely tore them apart, was making incredible passes at the end, things like that. But yeah, I mean, if if there is one guy that maybe can give him a little trouble at times, uh, and remember they had PJ Tucker too on their bench. PJ Tucker played that one big half against Jokic last year in Philadelphia. Um, so they do have two guys that might be able to maybe give him a little issues, but I've seen Jokic overcome so many things. I know. I I'm not, I don't feel comfortable even saying it, but it did happen. <laughs> it did happen, Chris. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's one of just to your point about Zubach, but also, I mean, I think we didn't really get into it with regards to Harden. I, I've been really impressed defensively. I mean, and, and and obviously with with the start of the season that he had, we're kind of used to the idea of Harden coming into the season, maybe not in the greatest shape. He wasn't really participating with the Sixers during the, the preseason because of that whole issue. He's been really good defensively. And even yesterday, there are just moments where he's on the ball defensively and he just knocks it away, pokes it away. And it, it you know, it kind of slows down the opposing offense's opportunity to get into their offense. He's stepping into passing lanes. He's helping. And granted, we've seen stretches like that before. And, you know, the Harden supporters will be very clear in telling you that, you know, he's a long way away from those years where he was just a meme defensively, where he wasn't trying. But when he's really activated and he's really giving effort defensively, especially on a team like this, where you have two, you know, at their peak world-class defenders on the wing already, and you've got Zubac, a guy that, like we said, has had some success, more than most people have had, against Jokic. It makes a really big difference, and I think it's really noteworthy here. Uh, uh, and another thing that I think bears watching for the next few weeks, the next few months, of uh, can he keep up that consistency defensively? Because he's a guy that, deflections-wise, is just way more active than he's really been in quite some time. Chris, he has seven blocks and three steals in his last three games. I guarantee you, I haven't looked at the number yet, but he's definitely there. He's got to be their stocks leader for sure. The dude swipes down everything. I told him like, I think it was last week where he got like this, like he got his hands in and it was like, it caused a turnover late against Portland. And I said, dude, your hands are way faster than I thought they were. And he looks at me and he says, dude, I let, I led pack 12 and steals, man. <laughs> when he was there, oh, boy. Was eight, that is ages boy, ago. That is that is reaching back. Wow, <laughs> ages ago. I mean, but, okay. but I'm telling you, he gets his hands in on so many, th- dude. Seven blocks in the last three games, but they're not like the classic, you know, Dikembe Mutombo blocks where he's swatting stuff. Everything is just like he's swatting down on everything, and he's being incredibly mm-hmm. disruptive. And he's also staying well, in front of guys at times, which is one thing I, surprising. One thing I'll say about Harden is when it comes to hand fighting, which is more a thing that you see with defensive and offensive linemen in football. Harden is a master at that. Harden is a master at where to put the ball on the gather 
to get fouled. And he does have incredibly strong hands and forearms. It's what he uses to draw fouls. And so like, it's not, it would not be a surprise to me that he actually would be very adept in playing the other side of it. If you know how to draw fouls with where you put your arms and how you manipulate the ball and angles and stuff on the gather, Mm. you would also be able to do the same thing. It's just that the want to do that hasn't always been there. That's a really good point, Brad. Before we move on, I will say this. So the Pacers obviously get beat. Tyrese Halliburton in this game was minus 37. Um, And I will say that there has definitely been a, a in-season tournament hangover for both the Pacers (laughs) and the Lakers. It, I think it was compounded by the fact that both of those teams went into, I think, road trips right after that. Um, I think at least three games. The, the, the Lakers went to Texas and the Pacers went on a road trip. And I think both teams are one and four since playing the on the IST. So, you know, basically their, their road trips got extended because they went to Vegas for a two-game road trip and then, then had to go out. The only win for the Pacers in there was against the Pistons which is not an accomplishment. The Pistons have lost 24 in a row. And the only win for the Lakers was against the Spurs. And then they lost, then they rested some guys the next game and lost in the Spurs uh, 18 game losing streak was snapped. And the Lakers, which we'll talk about the Knicks in a little bit, um, but the Lakers came back home for one game. So they went to Vegas, played two games there, went out on a three game road trip to Texas, came back for one game and immediately are leaving out. They're going to Tuesday today, they're going to fly to Chicago for Chicago, Minnesota, Oklahoma City. That's a mm. tough Midwest trip. And then they come home for Christmas for the Celtics. So the chances of that extending are kind of real. So I'm just saying that there's a hangover effect that seems to be in existence from the IST, which, you know, where this is all new data. But I think that they would say in the future, don't schedule any long road trips after the IST. But like, what are you going to do? That's you can't redo everything. More Hoop Collective podcast after this. Anyway, we mentioned the Bulls a second ago. The Bulls had one of the more impressive wins of the season on Monday night, in my opinion, when they won in Philadelphia against the then red hot uh, Sixers. They'd won six in a row. Bontemps and McMahon aren't here, but guys, we went on a, a long complimentary. You know, a couple weeks ago, I went on a long jag about how Jokic is like having like even the better season they did last year. And then he immediately took a nosedive, couldn't make a shot for 10 days. And the Nuggets started dropping games. We gave a Valentine to uh, Joel Embiid Sunday night when we recorded. And it wasn't Embiid's fault, but the Sixers dropped the game at home. But Chicago going into Philly and winning on Monday night was a terrific win. Embiid scored 38 points through three quarters in that game, then just two down the stretch. The Bulls dodged a shot at the end where Embiid could have tied it. And when the Bulls are now six and three uh, in their last nine games, which coincides with Zach Levine going out with a foot injury, the biggest beneficiary of the Zach Levine going down has been Kobe White. Not that they played the exact same position or, or similar games, but this has really been Kobe's, I would, I would argue, his best stretch of his career. I mean, maybe somebody who has better data would dispute that, but um. In this in this stretch uh, since DeRozan or um, since Levine went down, he's averaging 25 points a game on 50 percent shooting. He's been playing almost 40 minutes a night, 
There might have been an overtime game in there that boosts that a little bit. But there Billy was. Donovan is, is playing him huge minutes. He's shooting a ton of threes, Chris, a ton of threes, and he's making them. Yeah. He's shooting 49% on threes. He is absolutely the scoring machine that they dreamed of when they signed, when they drafted him uh, with the seventh pick. I think it was a 19 mid-lottery pick. And, you know, some of these games have been really hard games. Like he had 33 points in Milwaukee. Now, okay, not the defensive capital of the world. He had 27 points against the Nuggets. Um, they played a two-game series in um, in Miami, 26 and 22. He had um, 24 against I, – I think he had 24 last night. Yeah, 24 yeah. last night. And, he and had, nine uh, assists. And he had right. 11 assists against the Heat in one of the games. Right. And so, Chris, like – Look, I, I'm not like a Ewing theory guy or whatever. Um, you look at the quotes that are coming out of the Bulls locker room after these games. They're talking about how much fun they're having, that the vibes are great, that they're sharing the ball. And of course, you know, Zach Levine was a guy who was not a ball share. Um, famously had a 50 point game with no assists earlier this year. And, you know, Billy Donovan made it very clear. Like Zach has been with the team. He's been very active on the bench. Uh, very active in the locker room, you know, like he hasn't been pouting, but look, the guy asked for a trade. The team was really struggling. They were, they were, they were having issues with, you know, getting a flow, getting positive momentum. Levine goes down and all of a sudden they look like a different team. I don't know what I mean. There's circumstances around it, but this is what it is. And it's something to be taken notice of. You have to take notice of it. I mean, first of all, Kobe White had been playing well and had a really good end to last season too. I mean, he's now two and a half years, you know, two and a quarter years into the fact that he's looked like a different player and not just the offensive stuff. I mean, if you look at that play that you were talking about, Brian, where Embiid had a chance to tie it at the end and didn't, Kobe White was the guy that stepped up and, and defended the play. Now, did he knock the ball away from him? No, but he was just kind of an obstruction there. And Embiid, as we talked about with Harden a moment ago, someone that's just a master at drawing fouls, it looked like Embiid was kind of anticipating that he would get fouled, and Kobe White didn't foul him, and, and so he just kind of lost the ball. That's not a play that first, second year, maybe even third year Kobe White makes, but he's he's become a lot smarter, uh, I think, as a defender. He's, he doesn't necessarily hurt you defensively. He can step up and make plays there. He's a hell of a playmaker, as Om talked about with the 11-assist game. Last night was a game where he also didn't get a whole lot from DeRozan. DeRozan was something like 5 of 15, and Kobe White is really the guy that, and not to mention they were also down by, what, 13, 15 very early in this game against Philly, and it would be really easy. Okay, we don't have Levine. DeRozan's not playing particularly well for that to just be the, the end-all, be-all. But, but Kobe White... Seems to take it as a challenge offensively and it has just come up huge for this team. You talked about his three-point shooting. He's taking a lot of threes. I mean, he's he's taking seven and a half threes per game and hitting them at what are we talking about? A a 42% clip. You know, yesterday, uh, reading Casey Johnson, he was in the locker room when Alex Caruso used it as an opportunity to kind of shout out Kobe White and his, you know, the fact that he should be included in the three-point contest. He he should with those sorts of numbers. You know, it seems like, you know, of course, the league would love to have star players, you know, fill up every one of those eight or ten slots or whatever they are. But Kobe White plays for a big market team, is, is I think, third in the league in three-point shots made this year. Um, this is legitimate stuff, and it's I, I think it speaks volumes about the fact that it's happening while Levine is out. Now, does it mean you just hand over the keys to the guy 
indefinitely um, with the idea that you just move Levine and, and this is your new guy. I don't think you can say that definitively. I, I, like you said, I'm not a big Ewing theory person either, but I think what you have to take into account here with the Bulls specifically is they've moved on from guys before and then watched them thrive in other places. And I can be honest That's with you sure. in saying that, you know, I I'm from Chicago. Uh, my best friends are, are big Bulls fans. We debate constantly um, whether or not they should move on from certain people. My best friend has been down on Patrick Williams forever, you know, and, and mm -hmm. like, that's not I've a rare position. <laughs> it, it's not, but he's also played better during the streak, which has kind of been my question all along of, is this going to become a Wendell Carter? Is this going to become a Larry Markinen when you move on from him? And then actually he balls out somewhere else. And quite frankly, you know, this is a conversation we'd had about Kobe white before, um, about the idea of should they move on from him uh, before he's in a contract year, before they have to pay him. And the truth is, had they done that, he he could have, you know, he could have done what he's doing right now with another team. And I think it would have been a knock on the Bulls' development if we'd seen that happen or just the fact that they didn't have enough faith in the guy. But also, how would you know when you've got two guys that are dominating your offense and one of them, the question that we're kind of inherently raising here is like, how much better or worse does Levine make your team despite the fact that he can go out and score? But is he a guy that inspires confidence in other people? Does he share the ball enough? Is he willing to get back on defense when he's upset with a call? And these are areas where I think, you know, if you just look at the games and, and take what I was telling you about the idea that he's bringing them back from deficits, he's allowing them to still have a shot in games, even when DeRozan doesn't play well. That's a form of leadership. And it's, you know, especially when you take into account that it's without the pouting, it's without the idea that you're, you know, you're essentially making it known that you'd like to be somewhere else. So these are all things the Bulls need to look at. But I think when you're starting to see improved development out of certain guys, uh, while one of your star players is out, that has to, and in some ways, I think make it even an easier decision at some point to move on from Zach Levine because this is stuff that you want to see from these guys as you continue to build this organization. Yeah, out. he signed. A, by the way, he signed a three-year, thirty-six million-dollar deal last summer. So basically, the mid-level is what they gave him for three years, and uh, that contract's looking pretty good. It was. I don't think it was controversial because of the way he played at the end of last season, but it wasn't. Yes, it wasn't considered a uh, a no-brainer. Um, no, you know, by no means. You know, um, uh, also, just to explain the Ewing theory, just in case people don't know it, like Bill Simmons, I don't know if he popularized or if he came up with that. I, I'm sorry if I if he invented it, but like the, it's the concept that there's a, that sometimes star players can be overvalued by fans because they're star players, and that when they move on, it potentially can actually help the team. Uh, like I said, I'm not necessarily a believer in it. Although, um, is is it is it the genesis of that when? When Ewing went on and then the Knicks made the finals in 99. Is well, that yeah, what that's from? Well, he didn't go on. He got hurt that season. Oh, okay. I covered that team. And Patrick had uh, broken his wrist. Uh, he It was like a, basically, I think in 97, he broke his wrist, came back, uh, missed most of the season. But then Latrell Sprewell and Allen Houston and especially Marcus Camby started to take off. And then when that 99 run to the finals, Ewing got hurt. I think it was like a hamstring injury or something like that. And during that season, it was Achilles, especially in that playoffs. Yeah. During Achilles, during that playoffs, Camby took off. I mean, Camby was a matchup nightmare in the playoffs, dominated like the Atlanta Hawks in one round. And so basically Nick fans were like, 
We want Marcus Camby. We want Latrose Spiegel. We want this new brand of running the ball, these alley-oops and things like that, as opposed to throwing it into the big man inside and watch Patrick Ewing go to work. And then when they got to the finals, they realized they were too small, needed Patrick Ewing because they <laughs> ran into David Robinson and Tim right. Duncan. Which um, is why but, it's, you know, uh, it's a little bit more com- it's a little bit more complicated than that. Yeah, but and yeah, then of course ahead, they sorry. traded Ewing to Seattle. Uh, And then fans really started to miss him a little bit. And then Patrick, but Patrick's career had already been on the downturn because of Of all the injuries. So, but I mean, like, you know, like Patrick Williams are looking at him and like, you know, everybody talked about him as possibly being, you know, a Kawhi Leonard type of guy. He actually scored double digits in 10 of his last 13 games. He did have like a little bad stretch, a two game stretch against Denver or Miami. But I mean, look, he's shooting 50% this month. He's averaging 13.9 points, 5.4 rebounds. I mean, he is starting, he's playing bigger minutes. He looks like the guy that they've been waiting for. Yeah, so we'll monitor the Bulls. By the way, Levine is still a couple of weeks away from coming back. He has started running on that foot, but he's not cutting. So we'll see. The, the, I don't think there's any doubt, guys, that the Bulls are willing to trade Levine. There's just no trade that makes total sense. So, you know, we'll see. But also, look, I am a believer in Zach Levine. I really like his game. It doesn't always look great, but, and I think when he wants to, he can be a factor defensively. He's just, you know, giving him that max contract in a five-year max, which was really the part of it that was hard to swallow coming off with this knee issue that he had, that was tough. And so I just don't think he can quite be the same player as he's, as he's recovered from that knee issue. And I also think that there are times when he sort of goes off on his own, but I, I don't necessarily think that he's a guy you should completely give up on. If for no other reason, then there's no great trade for him. If there's no great trade for him, then try to make it work. Um, I, 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 I find it so hard to believe that at some point someone, I, I mean, but we could also have the conversation about whether this stretch and if the bulls continue to play this well, if in some ways it has like a negative effect on the bulls ability to get what they want for him, because if it suggests that he's maybe not the greatest locker room guy, although he's been supportive of his teammates as this is, I don't think he's a bad guy. I just think his game wears on his teammates, especially when you're losing. Yeah. And, and, and that's what I was going to come back to is I and I don't have evidence of this. I, I think he was a little bit too young and in too young of a situation before with Minnesota. But I'm I'm pretty firmly convinced that if this this is your third, maybe even your fourth guy, I don't know what team he'd be a fourth guy for. But if that's the case, and you've got enough guardrails built in defensively, and you can keep him focused, and he's seeing the bigger picture in terms of being the same way we just watched with the Pacers on a much smaller scale. You're playing for something which is something that he really hasn't had much opportunity to do for a four-year stretch. The Bulls were the losingest team in the NBA. He, I think he could be more than what he's been, even if statistically he's less. And that's that's what I think someone should be willing to trade for at some point if you're convinced he's healthy, if you're convinced you've got the roster to really well around him. That That's fine in a laboratory, but at 44 or 45 million or whatever his contract averages, he's probably not going to be your your uh your fourth best player you know if and that's that's why Not fourth yeah well whatever well, you know yeah you know, at that at that salary price especially as the con looking at it right now it ends up at almost 49 million at the end it's that's it's real it, money it's it's not that people don't like levine as a player it's just they don't like the contract with three years left on it after this year all fully that's guaranteed fair. and where he's got you know health concerns 
More Hoop Collective podcast after this. A minute ago, we mentioned the Knicks. The Knicks just completed a um, a two and two Western road trip. They were just here in Los Angeles last night. They beat the Lakers. They're kind of limping home. Uh, Mitchell Robinson is out two to three months with uh, the was it his ankle surgery he had to have or fucking yeah. foot or ankle. And last night, uh, the guy who's been starting in his place, Jericho Sims, hurt his ankle. So I don't know. He's going to be out there relying on Taj Gibson. But the Knicks are nicking. The, the, they're absolutely playing their system, Chris, uh, which is win the paint. You know, the Lakers are a team that is, is, a, is a dominant paint team a lot of nights. We definitely saw that happen in the in-season tournament. Um, the Knicks beat them inside last night. Offensive rebounding, you know, we see, you know, that's what Mitchell Robinson and Josh Hart are specialists at. Go in and get those offensive board, extra possessions. They defend the interior very well. They pretty much let you shoot three-pointers. I think the the Knicks are a terrible matchup for the Lakers, who are a poor three-point shooting team. The Knicks are going to let you take as many threes as you want. And in this game that they played on Monday, uh, I think um, the you know the Knicks starting wings, uh, Cam Reddish and uh, Torian, shot, f- I think, three of 17. Three for or something 17. Like that. Yeah. Three for 17. Um, and, uh, you know, they could have – easily gone seven for 17 and it had been a different game, but um, the Knicks work their They work their system and Tibbs gets them ready to play Brunson, you know, is able to deliver, you know, uh, injection of points about every night. You know, I think at the end of games, sometimes it's a challenge for him with his size, but he is able to, you know, create a space over and over. I don't know where they're headed, I don't know if they're able to make a trade. I don't know how the Mitchell Robinson injury long-term is going to affect them, but they are hanging in there. And in a Eastern conference where we've seen some teams, you know, stub their toe a little bit, the Cavs have spun their wheels and are now facing uh, injury concerns. Uh, the heat have been banged up a lot with injuries this year. You know, the Knicks are right there in fifth place where they were a year ago and they survived this West coast trip. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's hard to know exactly what to make of them. Uh, I know even just with, with our editors at ESPN, you know, the Mitchell Robinson thing happens and you you look at it and you think that this could have a real impact on them. And to be honest with you, it has that they've been essentially in the last nine games, one of the worst defenses in the league for a team, for a coach, if not the team, then the coach cares about that a great deal. Uh, you know, that this is someone that does not tolerate a, a poor, a porous defense. Mitchell Robinson is hugely impactful defensively he's hugely impactful as an offensive rebounder maybe the best offensive rebounder in the league and then as you said uh Jericho Sims gets hurt on the the tip-off which I you know I can't even remember the last time that happened with someone but you know lo and behold Isaiah Hartenstein comes in and who's one of the better backup bigs in the league yeah I mean that's that's one positive for them yeah he is now it's fascinating it makes them so left-handed when he's out there because they you know (laughs) at times they're playing with four left-handed players at the same time which is yes fascinating from that standpoint but also it didn't seem to hurt them last night Randall came out aggressively and it's been an interesting season for him because he was someone that was also coming off of an off-season surgery and struggled a little bit out of the gate but I think what I've noticed and I think other people have written about is he looks more comfortable at times not all the time it's not completely clean but he looks like he's making the right decision out of double teams more often which is 
so much of what really hampers him in the playoffs, certainly before they had Brunson, is just that he seems so determined to kind of do it by himself. And the playoffs are the wrong time to do that because, you know, and as a scrappy Atlanta Hawks team will will punish you if you're not willing to give up the ball and you let them load up on you with two and three people, you let them show their bodies in the paint, you still don't pass the ball. I think the only guy that has more charges in the league over the last five or six years is Giannis than Randall. So he's been guilty of making poor decisions with the ball, but it seems like he's making smarter decisions, in some cases quicker decisions. It seems like that engenders better ball movement for the Knicks, especially at a time where you've had two wing players, Josh Hart and Quentin Grimes at times, kind of maybe not complain, but say, I struggle to find a rhythm a little bit and really find my place in this offense because you've got three guys that kind of demand their 15 shots a game, if not more. And then there's the rest of us who score either off of offensive rebounds or we get one or two shots a half. And it is difficult to develop a rhythm like that. So better ball movement within this offense, whether it's Randall or anybody else, is really helpful. And, you know, Tom Thibodeau, to his credit, has made lineup moves where he's put Grimes on the bench. I still think that there's some tweaks to be made. One guy that I find really interesting in this in this sequence is Emmanuel Quickly was a guy that finished runner-up in sixth man of the year. He's playing less minutes than he did last year, despite the fact that his numbers are just as good, if not better in some cases, than they were last year um, because they've just got so many guards and so many wings. So he's someone that I find interesting. He's someone that plays really well with their three best scorers, um, has a very good net rating with their three best scorers. Uh, so he's someone that, you know, and, and as he's been playing less minutes, had a breakout performance last night against the Lakers too. So I'm curious what happens with that. But I don't think we've seen and heard the last of, do they miss Mitchell Robinson? Because, uh, you know, even yeah, if I they agree. win that game, yeah. uh, they defensively, even with a good defensive performance last night, and like you said, maybe some luck from the standpoint of the Lakers missing a lot of shots, LeBron missing four or five layups, all those missed threes. Uh, they're still the third worst defense over the last nine games without Mitchell Robinson. And I think that that might continue to be an issue for them. Yeah, good point. All right. Well, uh, thank you, Olm, for joining us from uh, from Alabama. Get out to uh that game tonight. Looking forward to your reporting on that. Chris, welcome back. And by the way, as long as we're talking about the Knicks, Chris Herring, one of the best basketball books of the last decade, Blood in the Garden. I see it over your shoulder there. Uh, on Man, your bless you. Thank you so much. Definitely. Uh, if you like the Knicks, you know about the book. I don't even know to, you know, if you're a Knicks fan, you know about it. Um, thank you for coming back. We look forward to having you back in the collective regularly. Thank you to Jackson, our producer, and uh, thank you for listening. We'll talk to you later this week.